Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 171, Little Women in Boston. Hi, I'm Nikki. This week, we're talking about Louisa May Alcott and the publication of Little Women. It has been said that, with the penning of the semi-autobiographical novel Little Women, Alcott launched the notion of the all-American girl. With both Sewell and Quincy ancestry, a sharp mind coupled with a determination to succeed, and a life guided by progressive values, Alcott herself was certainly an all-Boston girl. We'll discuss her long journey to overnight success and wrap up the episode with an interview with Serena Abalian, now portraying Joe in the Wheelock Family Theater's production of Little Women the Musical. Before we begin, I have what I think is very exciting news to share. Longtime listeners may recall episode 18, in which we discussed the incredible life of Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler, the first black female medical doctor trained in the United States. She graduated in 1864 from the New England Female Medical College in Boston. Dr. Crumpler and her husband, Arthur, are buried in an unmarked grave at Fairview Cemetery in Hyde Park. The Friends of the Hyde Park Library and the Hyde Park Historical Society are currently raising $5,000 for a simple gravestone to honor these two remarkable individuals. We'll include a link to support the project in this week's show notes. Now it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Inside the Combat Zone, the stripped-down story of Boston's most notorious neighborhood by Stephanie Shoro. On the author's website, Inside the Combat Zone is described as follows. Upscale restaurants, majestic theaters, and luxury condos line the streets of downtown Boston today. Students, office workers, doctors, and shoppers navigate the busy sidewalks along Washington and Boylston streets, giving little thought to the historical significance of their surroundings. The bustle distracts passersby from what may be the city's dirtiest little secret. These blocks were once home to Boston's most notorious neighborhood. The Combat Zone, a five-plus-acre city-sanctioned adult entertainment district, was as sordid and alluring as anything found in Amsterdam or Vegas. Indeed, Boston's now Tony neighborhood once resembled the set of HBO's The Deuce, all with the blessing of city officials. Shoro recounts the stories that make the Combat Zone infamous. Meet the dancers who stripped to punk rock, the cops who tried to keep order on the streets, and the hookers who turned tricks and slipped wallets from gullible tourists. Go beyond the enticing marquees promoting all nude reviews to discover how the zone, in an era dogged by miserable economics, remained one of Boston's most profitable neighborhoods. With Inside the Combat Zone, Shoro examines the constitutional and societal issues that led Boston to engineer an audacious social experiment, heralded across the nation as the solution to the pornography epidemic. She introduces the players who made it all possible and the antics and tragedies that unfolded as a result of their decisions. The streets come alive through interviews with former city planners, strippers, and porn merchants. Some nostalgically recall the combat zone as a seductive adult playground where men and women alike found the freedom to express themselves. Others remember it as a dangerous, crime-ridden neighborhood. Shuro deftly captures a moment in Boston's history that helped shape the city today and that will likely never be seen again. 
We'll link to the book in this week's show notes, as well as an interview in which Shuro discusses the book and her draw to the subject matter. And for our upcoming event this week, I'd like to share two walking tours that will be available for the upcoming long weekend. In honor of President's Day, our friends over at Boston by Foot have devised special walking tours that will allow you to see Boston through the eyes of our first two presidents. George Washington is up first with a tour on Saturday, February 16th. Here's how Boston by Foot describes it. This walk follows the first president on his six-day visit to Boston as part of his post-inaugural tour of New England 230 years ago. In 1789, Boston was on the cusp of transformation, its economy rebounding from the war years, with its advances in industry, technology, and commerce on show for this most important of visitors. Boston in 1789 was still a town, not a city. Charles Bullfinch had yet to create his many churches and civic landmarks, and the hills of the Shawmut Peninsula were not yet plundered for their gravel and landfill. As a side note, you can get more context for Boston in 1789 from episode 147, where we trace the trial and execution of the so-called pirate Rachel Wall. Wall was the last woman to be executed in Massachusetts, and she was hanged on the common just days before Washington's presidential visit. Back to Boston by foot. In part, we will walk the route of the civic parade organized for Washington's arrival, stop by many of the sites where he visited, worshipped, and yes, slept, and learn about Governor Hancock's political miscalculation when President Washington came to town. And because even now, almost 225 years later, John Adams still plays second fiddle to George Washington the Adams Family Tour will be held on Monday, February 17th. Their description begins with the words of 24-year-old John Adams describing the bustling town of Boston in 1759. My eyes are so diverted with chimney sweeps, carriers of wood, merchants, ladies, priests, carts, horses, oxen, coaches, market men and women, soldiers, sailors, and my ears with the rattle gabble of them all. Follow the words and history of four generations of Adamses, from their experiences at the old state house, through Beacon Hill, and into Back Bay. John, Abigail, and their descendants were prolific writers. The trove of documents they left behind intimately describes their lives, public service, and Boston on the eve of the Revolution to the turn of the 20th century. Both tours begin at 1 p.m., both cost $15 for non-members, and both tours meet near the old state house. Check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 171 for links to more information about how to register and where to meet. And now it's time for this week's main topic. I've come across a quote a few times, though I'm not sure who to attribute it to. You don't grow up to walk two steps behind your husband when you've met Joe March. The same could probably be said of Louisa May Alcott, in which case, you may not take a husband at all, choosing to, in her words, paddle your own canoe. Alcott's unconventional nature isn't surprising when you look to her parents and her upbringing. She was born on November 29, 1832, in Philadelphia. The youngest daughter of transcendentalist and educator Amos Bronson Alcott and social worker Abby May, Louisa, or Lou, was the second of four daughters. 
Anna Bronson Alcott was the eldest, Elizabeth Sewell Alcott and Abigail May Alcott were the two youngest. The family moved to Boston in 1834, when Bronson established an experimental school and joined the Transcendental Club with Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. The Temple School, which operated out of the Tremont Temple, closed after a brief six-year run. Alcott's frank discussions with the students about the Gospels, birth, and circumcision were considered highly indecent. When he admitted a black girl into the class, the school's fate was sealed. Families withdrew, and the Temple School closed in 1840. Bronson Alcott's opinions on education and tough views on child-rearing, as well as his moments of mental instability, shaped young Louisa's mind with a desire to achieve perfection, a goal of the transcendentalists with whom the family connected. His attitudes toward Louisa's independent behavior and his inability to provide for his family created conflict between Bronson Alcott, his wife, and his daughters. Abigail resented her husband's inability to recognize her sacrifices and related his thoughtlessness to the larger issue of inequality of the sexes. She passed this recognition and a desire to redress these wrongs done to women onto Louisa. In 1843, the Alcott family moved, along with several others, to the Utopian Fruitlands community for a brief interval in 1843 to 1844. Historian Joan Goodwin describes their time there. Fruitland made use of no animal products or labor, except, as Abigail Alcott observed, for that of women. She and her small daughters struggled to keep the household and farm going while the men went about the countryside philosophizing. After the collapse of the Utopian Fruitlands, they moved on to rented rooms and finally, with Abigail May Alcott's inheritance and financial help from Emerson, they purchased a homestead in Concord. They moved into this home and named it Hillside on April 1, 1845. While at Hillside, Bronson and Abby put their abolitionist views into practice. The National Park Service details this activity in the house that would later become known as the Wayside. By April of 1845, the Wayside, then dubbed Hillside, was owned by Bronson and Abigail Alcott, whose children were Anna, Louisa, Elizabeth, and May. In late 1846 and early 1847, the Alcotts aided at least one runaway enslaved man on his flight to freedom along the Underground Railroad. Mrs. Alcott wrote to her brother in January 1847. We have had an interesting fugitive here for two weeks, right from Maryland. He was anxious to get to Canada, and we have forwarded him the best way we could. His sufferings have been great, his intrepidity unparalleled. He agrees with us about boycotting slave produce. He says it is the only way the abolition of the slave can ever be effected. He says it will never be done by insurrection. Bronson Alcott described the arrival of a fugitive slave in his journal, noting, He is scarce 30 years old, athletic, dexterous, sagacious, and self-relying. He has many of the elements of a hero. His stay with us has given image and a name to the dire entity of slavery and was an impressive lesson to my children, bringing before them the wrongs of the black man and his tales of woe. The family moved in 1852, selling to Nathaniel Hawthorne, who renamed the home The Wayside. 
the Alcotts moved 22 times in 30 years. Poverty made it necessary for Louisa to go to work at an early age as a teacher, seamstress, governess, domestic helper, and eventually as a writer. Her sisters also supported the family, working as seamstresses, while their mother took on social work among the Irish immigrants, becoming one of the first paid social workers in Boston. Louisa quickly tired of their life of genteel poverty and struggle. She is quoted as saying, I wish I was rich, I was good, and we were all a happy family this day. It's clear that she was driven in life not to be poor. Louisa's first book, written in 1849, was Flower Fables, a selection of tales originally written for Ellen Emerson, daughter of Ralph Waldo. She then wrote a story entitled How I Went Out to Service, which was based on her experience working as a domestic helper in Dedham. Kit Haggard, director of the Boston Literary District, tells us the story of what happened next. Shortly after, in 1862, Alcott lived briefly with her second cousin, Annie Adams. Adams was a writer herself, author of a number of sentimentalist novels, as well as sketches of the many literary figures in her life, including Longfellow, Emerson, and Hawthorne. In later years, she was the close companion, and it is suspected, the lover, of American novelist Sarah Orne Jewett. At the time when Alcott stayed with her, however, she was married to publisher and editor James T. Fields. At some point during the period in which Alcott was staying with Adams and Fields, she showed him her story, How I Went Out to Service, with the hope of seeing it in the Atlantic Monthly. Fields famously advised Alcott, stick to your teaching, you can't write. He gave Alcott $40 to support the kindergarten she had recently opened, suggesting that she could repay the loan when she made a pot of gold. The kindergarten was ultimately short-lived, but nothing could have galvanized her more. In her journal, she wrote, I won't teach, and I can write, and I'll prove it. And in fact, she did see several pieces appear in the Atlantic Monthly. When the American Civil War broke out, she served as a nurse at the Union Hospital in Georgetown for six weeks, from 1862 to 1863. She intended to serve three months as a nurse, but halfway through, she contracted typhoid and became deathly ill though she eventually recovered. Her letters home were revised and published in the Boston anti-slavery paper Commonwealth and collected as hospital sketches in 1863. They were republished with editions in 1869. This work brought her first critical recognition for her observations and humor. She wrote about the mismanagement of hospitals and the indifference and callousness of some of the surgeons she encountered. Her main character, Tribulation Periwinkle, showed a passage from innocence to maturity and bore witness to the war. After her recovery, in the mid-1860s, Louisa wrote passionate and fiery novels under the nom de plume A.M. Bernard. Among those are A Long Fatal Love Chase and Pauline's Passion and Punishment. She also produced stories for children, and after they became popular, she did not go back to writing for adults. In 1868, her publisher recommended that she write a book about girls that would have widespread appeal. At first, she resisted, preferring to publish a collection of her short stories. Her publisher pressed her to write the girl's book first, 
and he was aided by her father, who also urged her to do so. Louisa confided to a friend, I could not write a girl's story, knowing little about any but my own sisters and always preferring boys. As quoted in Anne Boyd Rue's Meg Joe Beth Amy, a condensed biographical account of Alcott's life and writing. Of this experience, Alcott wrote in her journal, Niles, partner of Roberts, asked me to write a girl's book. I said, I'd try. Alcott set her novel in an imaginary orchard house modeled on her own residence of the same name where she wrote the novel. She later recalled that she did not think she could write a successful book for girls and did not enjoy writing it. I plot away, she wrote in her diary, although I don't enjoy this sort of thing. By June, Alcott had sent the first dozen chapters to Niles, and both agreed that they were dull. But Niles's niece, Lily Almy, read them and said that she enjoyed them. The completed manuscript was shown to several girls who agreed it was splendid. Alcott wrote, They are the best critics, so I should definitely be satisfied. The book's immediate success surprised both her and her publisher. The first printing of 2,000 copies sold out quickly, and the company had trouble keeping up with the demand for additional printings. They announced, The great literary hit of the season is undoubtedly Miss Alcott's Little Women, the orders for which continue to flow in upon us to such an extent as to make it impossible to answer them with promptness. Alcott delivered the manuscript for the second volume on New Year's Day 1869, just three months after publication of Part 1. In the late 20th century, editions began to combine both portions into one book under the name Little Women, with the latter written portion marked as Part 2. Kit Haggard details what must have been a sweet moment of success in a blog post she wrote in 2019 for Historic Boston, Inc. A few years after the publication of Little Women, Alcott wrote to James Fields, who had rejected her not so many years before, saying, Once upon a time you lent me $40, kindly saying that I might return them when I made a pot of gold. As the miracle has been unexpectedly wrought, I wish to fulfill my part of the bargain and herewith repay my debt with many thanks. Historian Joan Goodwin explains how the publication of Little Women changed Alcott's trajectory. From this point on, Louisa May Alcott was a victim of her own success. Though she yearned to do more serious fiction, children's books flowed from her pen for the rest of her life because they supported her family. Louisa herself wrote, Twenty years ago, I resolved to make the family independent if I could. At forty, that is done. Debts all paid, even the outlawed ones, and we have enough to be comfortable. It has cost me my health, perhaps, but as I still live, there is more for me to do, I suppose. Goodwin goes on to write that now, Alcott gave her energy to practical reforms, women's rights, and temperance. She attended the Women's Congress of 1875 in Syracuse, where she was introduced to Mary Livermore. She contributed to Lucy Stone's Women's Journal while organizing Concord women to vote in the school election. Was the first woman to register my name as a voter, she wrote. Drove about and drummed up women to my suffrage meeting. So hard to move people out of the old ruts. And again, helped start a temperance society much needed in Concord. I was secretary and wrote records, letters, and sent pledges, etc. Of her many activities, marriage was not one of them. 
She explained her spinsterhood in an interview with Louise Chandler Moulton. I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body because I have fallen in love with so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. In 1877, Alcott was one of the founders of the Women's Educational and Industrial Union in Boston. And after her youngest sister, May, died in 1879, Louisa took over the care of her niece, Lulu, who was named after Louisa. Alcott suffered chronic health problems in her later years, including vertigo. Her father suffered a stroke in 1882, and Louisa moved him to 10 Lewisburg Square on Beacon Hill. On March 1, 1888, as Louisa was sitting with Bronson, he said to her, I am going up. Come with me. And she responded, I wish I could. He died three days later on March 4th, and Louisa died just two days after him. 150 years later, Little Women endures, with the latest film version recently hitting theaters and Little Women the Musical playing at the Wheelock Family Theater through February 23rd. To discuss the production's connection to the novel and why you might want to catch the show, Serena Abalian is calling in from backstage. Serena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Could you um, kick things off by telling our listeners how this production, Little Women the Musical, picks up from Little Women the novel, which many of our listeners will know and love? Sure. So our story does a beautiful job of going back and forth and really highlighting the most iconic moments in Louisa May Alcott's story. Uh, unfortunately, as much as we wish we could put every single beautiful experience that the March sisters have, we'd be here all day and night. Um, but we do highlight some of the most beautiful, precious, and growing moments in each of the characters uh, in a beautiful, beautiful way. Our cast is amazing. And of course, we are a musical, so we make it as entertaining as possible. Um, and it's it's just, it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. I think we breathe life into the characters in a way that you might not have thought of or experienced when reading the book on your own. Awesome. So how do you prepare for a role in a production that's set in the 19th century, um, particularly when you're then also playing a character that's based on somebody who's so well-known and loved? Right. So the amazing thing about working with Wheelock is that we spent so much time really diving into the text and figuring out the nuances of how it was written for us to be performing it and as well our own experiences and interpretations of it. As we all know, all of these roles, regardless of what year they were written, are applicable to how we are as women and human beings today, regardless of um, gender. But something so magical of being able to take like you said, an iconic character such as Joe and understand that the, the journey and the struggles that she faces back in the 1860s are somewhat unfortunately also still occurring today in our modern world and, you know, taking bits of our own experiences as, as a woman in, you know, the creative industry and being able to navigate, you know, the struggles and how that felt like for me and just growing up and, you know, having friends and having loss and going through grief. It, they go through everything that we go through, uh, and it is beautifully set in in a beautiful time period, and we just kind of get to transplant it into our own modern modern view of things and be able to speak life into the lines in such a manner. That's an excellent segue and 
kind of an answer also to my next question. (laughs) You know, Little Women is definitely having a moment right now with the film release, but I would also argue that Little Women has never not had a moment pretty much since it was released. So, you know, my question was going to be like, why do you think the novel has has held up so well over time. And I feel like you, you really touched on a lot of that already. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's as much as we are continuously fighting for what we believe is right and, you know, gender equality and, um, you know, pay equality and, and all that sort of, sort of stuff, there, there will always be this coming of age, regardless of if, if you're a teenager or if you're, you know, a character like Marmy, who's trying to reflect and organize how to take care of, of a strong group of female women. I think what makes it so relatable decade after decade is that the way that Louisa May Alcott wrote these stories as a reflection of her own life is the truth. And I think it's sometimes rare to be able to find a piece of literature that's so well reflects the truth and not only reflects it, but shines a light on it that makes us feel almost like okay and safe about the fact that we are also going through all of these things and it's not pretty when we do so. And her story isn't pretty at times. Um, and it doesn't end for many readers the way that they wanted it to end as well. And I think, I mean, I think that's life. So when you get to see a piece of work that mirrors what you're going through, it, it's just, it becomes a part of you forever and ever. Yeah, I, I, know that Louisa May Alcott actually got a lot of hate mail about yes. the ending <laughs> and the fact yes, that Joe did. did not marry Lori. People were very, very upset about that. Yes. It was like um, the Game of Thrones debacle <laughs> of its day, really. You're so true. You're so right. Um, so for listeners who are not familiar with the Wheelock Family Theater, mm-hmm. the theater offers um, you know productions that are professional and affordable and that appeal to children and their families. And, you know, for some of your young audience members, this may be their first exposure to the theater. I think theater is a really powerful tool to introduce children to history because it's so immersive. Um, with all the themes that are happening in this production, what do you hope that your young audience members take away? I hope that they are empowered more than anything to not forget about that starry look in their eye or, you know, that sometimes we can see the world through, um, what is that? Pink, pink glasses? What pink lenses? Whatever, <laughs> whatever that phrase is. <laughs> Rose colored glasses. That's the word. That's what I'm looking for. Rose colored glasses. Um, that, that there is so much beauty in that and that you shouldn't let anyone quiet that voice or that desire to, to be bigger than yourself and to be very true and honest with yourself. And we see that in all the characters, not only the female characters and the young characters, but also in, you know, the male roles too, that they only become themselves when they're able to continue to believe in what they believe in the strongest. And I think throughout all the musical numbers and the fun that we have on stage, I just think it's a very empowering story for people of all ages, regardless of if you're, you know, a little girl dreaming of getting to the stage or becoming a world-renowned writer, as Joe likes to say, or, you know, if you're the mother of those or father of those children and just, you know, needing that extra that extra push and reassurance that you don't have to forget about about the whimsy of of what it is to to enjoy life. So I just have one last question for you. It's a very important question Uh-oh. though. <laughs> Which little woman do you most identify with? And I know that you're playing Joe, right. but if you put that aside, who who do you most identify with? I would say it would be a combination of 
probably Amy and Joe. I Oh, right I, on. Yeah. Because I, I I have Joe's very outspoken stubbornness. Well, and more so Amy's stubbornness a little bit as well. Um, but but I do find that that it's almost like this beautiful melange of the two characters that I think um would would be most similar to me. I don't think I'm nearly as I think Joe's a lot braver than I ever was, or at least I'm becoming. Uh, and in that sense, I'd like to think I may be a little bit more of an Amy where I just pout about things uh, if I can't get my way. But but Joe's bravery is definitely something that I'm trying to lean into as much as possible. So she's teaching me a lot the more I work with her as a character. Yeah, I imagine that later in life, Joe and Amy were very, very close. Yes. Because they are two sides of the same coin. Yes, precisely. But I have always identified as an Amy. <laughs> I'm the youngest sibling. Mm-hmm. And I like nice things. Yeah. You know, like there's a, I think Amy gets a bad rep. She and, does. You know, there's the whole like lime incident. But <laughs> you know what? I like limes. Yeah. And I like nice things. Yes. Um, Serena, yes. it's been great to chat with you. Likewise. I know that you have to to run to a rehearsal right now. Yes. Um, but I hope many of our listeners will come see you at the theater. I hope so, too. We're having so much fun here, and we just can't wait to share the story with everybody. Great. Thank you. To learn more about Louisa May Alcott, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 171. We'll have links to Louisa's page on the Boston Women's Heritage Trail, Kit Haggard's blog post, the National Park's profile of the Wayside, and more. And of course, we'll also have links to information about our upcoming event and Inside the Combat Zone, this week's Boston Book Club pick. As I wrap up, I want to thank everyone who sponsors Hub History on Patreon. Over the past year, you've allowed us to start providing transcripts with each episode, and finally, to get the show listed on Spotify, which is the fastest-growing podcast app. If you're not supporting the show and you'd like to, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. Before I let you go, I have some recent reader feedback to share. One of our latest reviews on Apple Podcasts is an endorsement of our show as entertainment for epic road trips. Ryan wrote, Fascinating history. I suggested to my stepdad that he listen to one episode. We ended up listening for 2,288 miles round trip to Alabama. Thanks so much. And after Mark M. from Utrecht in the Netherlands started supporting us on Patreon, we asked him how he ended up listening to a show about Boston history. He wrote back, in part, I've been a longtime listener to your podcast. I don't even quite remember how I first learned about it. I think it may have been suggested by a friend of mine who lives in Jamaica Plain a little over a year ago. Or earlier, I'm not sure. Either way, I've always found your show both very interesting and endearing. It's clearly a labor of love. I regularly binge on a couple of episodes at a time on the weekend, and my favorite episodes are usually the last ones I've heard. Although, I found the episodes about the regicide and the events surrounding the Glorious Revolution particularly interesting, as they've allowed me to make direct connections between Dutch and New England history. The thing is, I've always been interested in history in general, but in particular, I've always loved to be able to relate greater historical events to local places, and your podcast is great for that. Mark also suggested an episode about settlers from Watertown who moved into the Connecticut River Valley and provoked tensions with New Amsterdam, basically providing a 17th century basis for the Yankees and Red Sox rivalry. Mark, thank you for the kind words. 
and we'll put your suggestion on the to-do list. We love getting listener episode suggestions. If you want to suggest a topic or leave us any other feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit subscribe and be sure that you never miss an episode. And if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Jake will be back next week to talk about the Red Scare in Park Square. <laughs>